This is Anthony in Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. This episode of In the Arena is sponsored by Selling Power Magazine, Success Strategies for Sales Management. And I love Selling Power because I love my good friend Gerhard Schwantner, who is the publisher of Selling Power Magazine, and he also runs the Sales 2.0 conferences. So what you're going to get is you're going to get a magazine that comes to you in a PDF form when you sign up for Selling Power Magazine so that you can take it and read it on your tablet, which I love because I'm trying desperately hard to get rid of all the paper in my life. You're going to get proven tactics from industry experts. You're going to get sales strategies about sales performance and sales management. You're going to get motivation and you're going to get a lot of things about Gerhardt's big idea right now, which is all around the importance of mindset. And we'll have him on to, to talk about flipping a Tabasco bottle over using a knife, uh, which we actually have a video of. And it's really, really interesting about the power of the mind and thinking about these things. So when you go to sellingpower.com forward slash Anthony, you're going to get a special 12-issue subscription rate of $29 per year. You're also going to get three free ebooks, And if you want, you can get a three-year subscription for, for $49, which is great. So it's sellingpower.com forward slash Anthony. You'll find that in the show notes on this episode. If you don't know Tim Sanders, you're in for a real treat. If you have not read Love is the Killer App and Today We Are Rich, these are must-read books. We'll put links in the show notes for those. Tim has a new book about resourcefulness and creativity and working through stuck opportunities. It's called Deal Storming. So without any further ado, my friend Tim Sanders. Tim Sanders, how are you? I'm doing great, Anthony. Nice to talk to you, buddy. It's nice to talk to you. I met you the first time at SobCon in 2010, and I've said yeah. this to you offline, but I'll say it now on the recording. You you are so impressive as a speaker with with such great delivery and great presence. I was blown away, and I learned a lot uh, just watching you. So I enjoyed it a lot. I love it. I love to do that. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate it, Anthony. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what what's what's the best speech you've ever done? What what is the one the big memorable one that you have? Do you have one? <laughs> yeah, and I didn't get paid for it. Um, it was the first time I ever spoke at Yahoo Sales Conference in um, 1999, and I had just shown up there. You can imagine, dude, it was the heyday, and the um, SVP of Sales had asked me to do a talk on doing research before you went on a sales call because he was concerned at the time that it was so easy for all the Yahoos to sell to dot coms at the time in 1999, that if we were to graduate later to sell to big companies like Nike and P&G, they wouldn't like us because we weren't creating custom solutions. We didn't understand how they ran their business. So I gave this talk 
Um, and it was, it was a really important part of my career. I was just coming over to Yahoo from Mark Cuban's company. And so I gave a one-hour talk about how to prepare for a meeting and do research on your client's business so they don't have to tell you. And it changed my career. I mean, like literally within a month of giving that talk, I was transferred to headquarters and they gave me my own SWAT team to work on big deals. And I still look back on that as the, the talk that changed everything for but me. But you weren't a paid professional speaker at that time. Dude, I was just like one of the sales guys. <laughs> and it was funny because Seth Godin was speaking at the same thing. And so I got to share part of his stage time. And that's also the first time I met Seth. And that's when he kind of put a bug in my ear that maybe I could write a book someday. So it was a really good experience. Very cool. So authors, in, in my opinion, write a book when they have something to say. And, and right. they think that they have this important message that you, I, in my opinion, this is my experience, maybe I'm talking through, when you absolutely have something to say and you have to say it. And I think your books fall into that category. So mm-hmm. you've got a new book out. I'm holding in my hand. Nobody can see this because it's a podcast, but it's called Deal Storming. What, what caused you to, to pick this idea for this book now? Well, I've been noticing, Anthony, that in the world of B2B, sales complexity is completely out of hand. I mean, when I started in sales, I sold radio ads. It was simple. If you were using a video game analogy, it was like playing Pong. But over the last decade, it's become like playing Halo, right? More decision makers, more influencers. We're selling technology, not solutions anymore. It's so complex. And now we have customers that do all their own research and we have to spend all our time unteaching them. And so as a consultant, for a decade now, I've been working with B2B companies on how to get unstuck on account game-changing deals. And this process I developed is really working. And so I wanted to write a book to share a philosophy about teamwork and sales and to share a process that can help a lot of people get unstuck change the culture of their companies. Because I think it's really important that sales innovation and collaboration makes its way to the sales stack. It's funny you you talk about how much more difficult selling is now because I was challenged by somebody who told me, no, it's actually, it's not any more difficult. And I'm like, well, you, you have a different view of it than the rest of us. There's way more stakeholders, way more at stake, way more difficult because so people are so risk averse after the the last recession, I'm calling it post-traumatic recessionary stress disorder. I mean, anything right. to get rid of risk. And so even right. when they need to change, it's hard to change. So we have all these factors playing into it. What, in your opinion, uh, not, not the customer, why do we get stuck as salespeople and sales organizations and teams? What is it that when we're working on deals that causes us to get wrapped around the axle and feel like we have a single course of action that we can take? And I, I think of this in the way of, you know, if you only think that you can do one thing, you don't you, you don't have any choices. You just have a decision to make. Do I do this or not? And really what we're looking for is choices. So what is it that causes us to think we only have this one single choice? Well, I mean, I think that there's two things going on here. Um, first of all, we uh, usually work in companies that are very strict about the process. Right. So so sales leadership is really about, you know, repeat and scale repeat and scale. Creativity is, you know, off the script. So we're in a world where we're, we're told, you know, do it one more time, follow the system, trust the rules, fill the funnel. And so that's been a real part of our psyche for a long time. And the second thing is that we continue to live in a world where we really celebrate the top producer. You know, we, 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 we celebrate 
top producers based on the numbers he or she puts out, not the teams they build or you know in other ways to measure it. So between follow the system and be a top producer, it's really easy to understand how we would be a lone wolf that just sticks with one way of thinking. And here is the problem. The problem is that according to research, every year, the number of influencers that weigh in on your quality deals goes up 15%. Okay, And as that number goes up, it goes up more remotely, meaning you'll never meet with a high percentage of them face to face. So sales innovation at the deal level is more important than ever. And here's the second big issue. If you sell B2B services of any type, your competitor is the status quo because you're selling change. And change is harder than ever to sell because of business uncertainty, whether it's business uncertainty around the economy, business uncertainty about waiting you out till you get your next update, or what's going on right now where everybody thinks they can do all their own research on the internet, and by the time they meet with the sales rep, they think they know what they want. That's all going up. So as that changes, we have no choice but to change too, because these buyers are teaming up and winning. What's interesting about the process to me is that uh, I'm I'm a process guy, but I tell people I'm agnostic. Yeah. So I, I yeah. don't believe there's one process or one right process because the buyers give us different looks. And so we have to respond to that. So I think the process is more like it's not it's not linear. It's more mm-hmm. like a GPS. And you come into these territories where uh, the way that I would frame this up, where you're driving down the road and the GPS talks to you and says uh, turn by turn directions are not available in this area. Yeah. And you're like, okay, well, the reason I'm using my GPS is because I'm trying to find my way through this area and now I can't find direction. And that's sort of where we are in sales. We get to this this point where the customer gives us something and the sales process doesn't speak to it. And and this idea about stakeholders, I, I was in a room a couple of years ago with 14 stakeholders and I realized mm-hmm. that all of them had the permission to say no individually but none of them mm-hmm. had the permission to say yes individually. Oh, yeah. yeah that's, that's the world we live in, man. That is the world we live in. And so, you know, all these companies have a different process. And when I thought about deal storming and how I would work with my clients, I never interrupted their process. So if they were on Sandler or Miller-Hyman or Solution, I always thought of deal storming like an app. It was like something pulled out when you got stuck on a game changer. And what, what occurred to me is with a lot of my bigger clients, they would say, you know, Tim, decades ago, the world was our oyster. So we fought the funnel and we were okay with certain deals getting stuck in the funnel. He says, but now if you don't close half of your strategic deals in a niche, you're going to lose that category. So it's like you have to close a much higher percentage than you used to. So even though you've got a process that you know is funnel-based, at the end of the day, you need an app that you can pull out when you target something that you got to win and in the case of deal storming, we have about a 70% win ratio. It's, it's interesting to me because this is an insight that a lot of people don't know that you're sharing here. And it's in the book. I've read most of the book, which showed up yesterday. But I, I want to I point back to something that you said. So it's a strategic, what I would call high visibility, high value, must win deal. Uh-huh. And, and I see people compete for these and they say the deal's worth $2 million a year. Okay, well, how long do you typically keep those deals? Well, on average, we keep those deals for, for seven years then it's mm-hmm. a $14 million deal. And what mm-hmm. happens during that seven-year period when you don't have those opportunities that you should have? But they play like they're playing for two and not playing for 14. And you're making this point that the strategic loss can cost you a lot more. So the stakes are much higher. And there's a real reason to say, how do we find a yes here? How do we get through this stuck part where they say, 
you know, listen, we want this and you don't have exactly what we want. And we have to go back and say, okay, how do we figure out how to give these people what they want? Because it's 14 million, it's strategic for us. And so this is where deal storming enters the picture. Absolutely. And to even kind of drill down to this more, I've been working with companies that say, wow, well, doing big deals like half million dollar deals, million dollar deals, five-year deals, that's really hard. But I tell you what's easy. Why don't we get a bunch of sales development reps build a demo model where we give it to you free. We do a demo. And if you like it, we expand to 10 seats. That's 50 grand. We expand to 20 seats a year. It's 100. Those are test and scale. But here's the problem. We've done research on this. Um, That's great until one of your competitors that has more ambition and knows about deal storming comes in and does that $5 million deal and edges you out of the picture, even though you've been working on it for two years. Because big deals are your ultimate barrier to entry. And the reason we don't do them is because they're hard. But if you could do them, you would, because that's like the equivalent of mergers and acquisitions at the sales level, right? right. So that, that I think is really important. But here's the other thing. A lot of times when you talk to sales managers about you know doing cross-department collaboration to win the big ones, they go, dude, I don't like to work with the land of no, and I hate to work with the land of slow you know, like legal and operations and marketing and finance. They say, I don't want them to have a voice on my process and affect my commission. And then we show them the statistics. We say, look at the win-loss ratio. Look at how you can compress your sales cycle. And then they say, well, here's the other issue. It takes more time. Now I got to go build the team. We got to have meetings. I got to convince everybody. And then we show them, we say, you know what really takes time? Hitting your head against the wall over and over and over again with the same old thing that's not working. That takes a lot of time. But the bigger issue is that getting back to the video game analogy, sometimes on a deal or an account, you run out of lives. Yeah. If you've ever had a prospect just go dark on you after the fifth bad attempt, you know what I mean. In the world of marketing, if you get somebody and they come to your page and they don't convert, it costs you 500% more to get them back a second time. So, you know, you got to protect those lives and make the next best play, as Coach K would say. Yeah, and I know uh, Tom Peters has mentioned in your book, too, another great influence. He's been talking about functional teams. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and he's been writing about it and talking about it. It turns out, in my experience, when you put the ops people in front of the customer and they get to talk about what they really want, those people can figure out how to get it done anyway. I mean, I want to get them involved as early as possible. They have the ownership and the commitment, and they also have the chops to have a real conversation about how do we get you this result. Yeah, you know, if you bring in ops when it's a sales challenge, not a delivery crisis, (laughs) their attitude is remarkably different, right? Uh, It's like the difference between ham and eggs. The chicken's involved, but the pig is committed. That ops person is at the table. They're an owner of the process. But let me say something, and I say this in the book, Anthony. When you're leading a deal storm and you've got a team going on a deal, you have to understand consensus is not about everybody in the room agreeing, okay? Consensus is about everybody in the room being able to live with the next best play. And so that's really an important thing to understand. So the ops person is not going to stop you if you bring them in early. At the worst case, they're going to tell you what you need to modify so he or she can live with the work or you know the added stress to their system. And that's a really important thing to take away. Tom Peters, a mentor of mine, he gave me my first paid speaking gig. Um, I've known him for When I went to Yahoo, he told me, he says, Tim, he says, the smartest thing you can do at this dysfunctional company, because he was familiar with Yahoo, 
He said, the smartest thing you can do is from the first day you show up, every lunch, eat with a different department. He's like, never eat with sales. Always eat with somebody else. And he goes, make friends. So I would go meet with the sports team, with the finance team, with the engineering team, with the data mining team, with the, all these guys. And they would gripe about us and things that we had done, or they would talk about their own problems. And I was like, Phil Donahue, man, I'm just like listening, I'm listening. And so I started to say, what can I do to help you? And I did some favors. And then so like a year later, when I got put in charge of the value lab going after big deals where we had to get a bunch of help across the company, huh, I had a tribe. And that's where I learned what Tom told me. The best time to build relationships at work is long, long, long before you need them. And so that's a piece of advice I still give noobs when they go into a new company on an acquisition or they join a big company. Go make friends. Get out of your silo. Speaking of noobs, we're going to have to uh, put a link in to define who Phil Donahue is for, oh, for, oh, for right. millennial age people who won't know that. Okay. Let, let me let me push into yeah. to deal storming a little bit. Um People know what brainstorming is. And what I'm afraid of is when they, they look at this, they're immediately going to think, oh, I know what brainstorming is. We've all gone into a room with a whiteboard and thrown things mm-hmm. against it. And we've been approached to think laterally and things like that. Mm-hmm. There's a big difference between what you're calling deal storming and brainstorming. Can you define that so people understand w- what you're really talking about here when you're using this word? Yes. Brainstorming is when you bring in a random group of people to come up with a long list of ideas to solve a problem. And the rule of brainstorming is any idea is good, no such thing as a bad idea. Don't debate ideas because you're going to hurt creativity and we're going for quantity. And by the way, brainstorming meetings usually suck, right? You go into the room, it's like a goat rodeo, you don't know what happened. But you know, it was invented in 1920s and it's worked for a long time to come up with a long list. Deal storming is different. It's about taking process and putting it together with innovation. So in deal storming, We target a team of stakeholders, people who have the stake in the outcome or expertise about the problem space. We brief them before the meeting on opportunity, problem space, influencer map, and we give them an assignment for the meeting. When we come into the room, we spend 15 minutes just debating what's the problem, the real problem, the root problem. We spend another 20 minutes nominating potential solutions and exploring their assumptions. We find finalists. We have a very candid, if not spirited, debate. We choose the next best play. We distribute work, and we walk out of the room with a strategy. That's process-driven. And even though it leads to the same innovative thinking, it respects everybody's time and it gives them the incubation period so that by the time they come to a meeting, they're ready to rock. And this allows you to have shorter meetings. It allows you to execute faster and iterate faster. And that's why it compresses the sales cycle on big deals 25%. So it's radically different than brainstorming. Yeah. And you talked about this just for one minute. I'll ask you to go a little bit deeper into this idea of the parse. That's what you call it, right? Yeah, this yeah, is the so, game changer, man. So this is the parse. Let's talk about that because I, I, I like for these podcasts, for people to have something that's actionable for them. And this is a, an interesting concept to say, most of the time when you brainstorm, people show up, they got a cup of coffee, a whiteboard, and a marker. There's been no prep work. There's none of that. What's in that parse? Lay, lay it out so, for us. So, so the parse is a three to four page. Think of it as a brief. I call it a parse because it's not 300 pages. But it's a three to four page brief that you could give as an onboarding tool to anyone on your DealStorm team. Here's what the brief has. 
It has in the beginning a statement of the opportunity, not just the revenue opportunity, but the strategic opportunity. It could have to do with kicking a competitor's butt. It could have to do with our reputation in the space, whatever. But a little paragraph about the opportunity. Another paragraph about what you perceive as the, the sticking point, why we aren't moving forward on the deal. Then there's going to be what I call the influence map so that everybody understands who on the other side is in the mix as an influencer. Then there is what I call activities today. You'll probably pull that from Salesforce. It helps everybody know what we've tried and even they can look at the collateral. And then the last piece of the puzzle could be updates on this company, you know, things in the news that give us some, some food for thought. Every one of these briefs should be customized. So at the end of it, you'd say, okay, Anthony, you're in finance revenue recognition. Here's what I'd like you to think about before the meeting. Think about different ways that we could build this or stage the building process to overcome what we think the sticking point is. And that's their you know, uncertainty about next year's budget. I'm just kind of making this up, but it's an individual assignment. So I give this to you you, you don't know anything about sales. You don't know anything about the Nestle account. But if you read these three to four pages over the weekend, your mind is going to incubate on it. And that's the whole secret to it. So like you're walking your dog, you're watching the football game, and you're kind of thinking about everything I've told you in the brief. So by the time you walk into the room, we don't have to spend a half hour of me briefing you. We walk into the room and we say, let's debate the problem. Is this the real reason we're stuck? Is it really their budget? And now you in finance might know something I don't know about how budgets are done. And you've been thinking about it all weekend long. That brief changed everything in my sales career. And, and by the way, I got the idea because I was doing a gig. Tom Peters was at the gig. So Tom Kelly is, he wrote The Art of Innovation. Right. He is a co-founder of Ideo Labs. They invented like the mouse, the Newton, the pump soap. I mean, these guys are brilliant. And he's the guy that told me this. When I first started the SWAT team, I said, man, every time I get together these groups, I think we're like buying a lottery ticket for a million dollars. And he quoted Louis Pasteur and he goes, Tim, chance favors the prepared mind. He goes, the secret to IDEO is that we all were briefed days before a meeting. So when we went into the rooms together, we already had ideas. And the minute I started trying that, it changed everything on our closing ratio. And I'll send you a template of a deal brief you can post um, and, and, and link to so everybody that's on the podcast can download their own template. But if you follow this to a T and you distribute this deal brief two or three days before any kind of cross-department meeting, your meeting's going to rock. Tell me, I, I've gone through the book. I mean, I, 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 I just got the book yesterday, so I read about half of the book and prep for this. Um, you're a fast reader, buddy. You, uh, no, it's a good read. Plus, you're a storyteller, and so the stories yeah. drag you through um, fast, in my opinion. Uh, yeah. How many templates, if somebody goes out and starts pulling down templates, what are they getting? How many templates are there? It looks like there's multiple templates out there for this. Oh, yeah. So if you went to, um, if you went to, to timsanders.com front slash deal storming, just timsanders.com front slash the name of the book, that's just a resources page. So you're going to get a template to write deal briefs. You're going to get a template to create an influence map. You're going to get a template for what I call the fishbone diagram. It's an old thing from the quality movement, but what it, it's a diagram where you start to that one. and you work backwards. So all the different templates I talk about in the book, you can download them there. Yeah, that's awesome. And I'd love to link that here. We'll, we'll do that. Great. Let, let's let, do that. Let me move into, um, I want to take a just sort of a deeper dive, if you don't mind, into the convene. And okay. 
I, I've got a book that's going to come out in October and it's about the different attributes and skills that salespeople need to succeed now. And right. one of the attributes that I, I call the linchpin attribute is resourcefulness. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the greatest human attribute in, in, in it actuates so many others is creativity and imagination because whatever mm-hmm. problem you put in front of human beings, given a long enough timeline, well, we'll screw it up a whole bunch of times along that timeline, but eventually we figure things out because of our resourcefulness. And one of my right. favorite pictures I've ever seen on the internet, I captured and used in a, a blog post in a newsletter is it's a wheel sitting next to a curb and it's got the boot on it. Mm-hmm. And the way that the boot is locked onto a wheel, you can't get the lug nuts off. But somehow this person has removed the car from the entire boot and the wheel. So <laughs> the the amount of resourcefulness that that took, I have no idea, but it just shows you under <laughs> desperate circumstances, we can come up with ideas. Um, That's right. I, I want to think about this. So we get people in a room, we, we're calling on them to have read this parse. They show up and yep. we're asking them, be creative, be imaginative. How do you how do you actuate that resourcefulness in this meeting? And then if if you can tie this together, I'd love for you to share the fishbone diagram and talk about these big buckets where I'll just describe them as maybe they're natural constraints. There's six areas where you're likely to see some natural constraints and some challenges. So first, let's talk about how to get everybody to read your deal brief before the meeting. Because if they read it a couple of days before the meeting, creativity researchers tell you that it creates the incubation period, right? Resourcefulness has to do with the amount of data points and stories in your head and your ability to connect them together, right? So that's where all ideas come from is information you put into your head. So I've learned you don't ask people to come to a meeting, okay? You ask them to join a cause, There's a big why behind it all. There's an urgency to it. They feel like they're part of something bigger than just a meeting. And that helps. So when you send the deal brief, I follow up with a phone call. Did Anthony, did you get the deal brief? Have you read the deal brief? My gosh, you got to read the deal brief. Please read the deal brief. I might even email you over the week and say, please read the deal brief. I've had clients that created a, a, a fun little icebreaker. So at the beginning of the meeting, they'd have like a, tell me three things about the deal brief you liked. And they would give the winner a $25 Amazon gift certificate. I mean, I've been seeing people be very smart about this. So you can get people to read it. I think that when you get into a meeting, you've got to remember the definition of creativity. Creativity is one's ability to produce unexpected solutions that are appropriate to the situation. So you're really pushing people to think different, but you're also pushing people to predict success. So you're not just trying to be imaginative. You're trying to say, I've got an idea. Here's the assumption behind the idea. Yep, that assumption is correct. And let me imagine how it would scale 100 times. That's a process you kind of teach people when you're running a meeting. And for an account executive, if you learn how to run a meeting across departments, you will become a leader at your company. It's like the hardest thing you'll ever learn how to do is to run a meeting with five fault lines and six agendas and not have it turn into a complete bitch session. That's the reason the longest chapter in my book is about how to run a really strong meeting. So that's a really important piece of the puzzle. But as an account executive, you can do it if you recruit them and if you prepare them and if you follow those ground rules and that agenda with an iron fist and you will impress everyone, especially your manager who is your sponsor on this. The uh, the magic meetings stands by itself. I mean, that's probably a whole, uh, that could be another book by itself. 
That's how bad yeah. bones are. It's really important. So when we get it in is. here, we convene. Can you talk about the fishbone and the big buckets of constraints that people generally run into when you talk about deal storming? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. So the first 15 minutes of every meeting when you're trying to solve a, an account problem should be to verify that you're solving the right problem, right? You think you're stuck because your competitor is installed at the company. You think that's the root problem. Well, you're going to, you need to open the floor up to that because what I found in my work is that seven times out of 10, we're wrong. And somebody in the room points out the real problem behind the problem. And so there needs to be a debate about that. And there's technology for this, Anthony. Um, I, I came from the quality movement. So I started out in the old days running quality circle meetings at, at a defense contractor who had quality issues at the plant. Okay, So in Japan, at Toyota, in the 70s, they developed a way to find the root cause of a manufacturing defect. So they would start with the defect. And they would create six different buckets. It looks like a fishbone. That's why we call it the fishbone diagram. But they create six little drop downs, three on top, three on bottom. And that would be six different categories where the problem could be being caused. So in their case, it could be the materials they use. It could be the people they hire. It could be the processes they use. It could be the suppliers they depend on. It could be their information system. And it could also um, be third-party consultants. I'm just kind of making this up. But they define those six categories of potential constraints. So then they would debate, they would rank, they would prioritize, and they would find the one problem that they should solve first. And it worked. It led to a dramatic increase in finding problems. I've adapted this to sales over the last 10 years. So when you've got a sales challenge and you're stuck in a big deal process and you start with the problem, they're not returning our phone calls after the last presentation when we presented the number and the agreement. That might be a starting point, okay? You're going to work backwards. And in this case, the template I have, which you can print out five by five feet, put in a meeting and have everybody write on, it puts the categories there, right? So in this case, you've got the product that you were selling. You've got the people that you were using, including their people that you were selling to. You've got your information. You've got the selling device. In other words, what was the ROI formula? Was it a, a statistic? Was it an infographic? Was it an analogy? You've also got the category of timing. And then finally, you've got the category of market, which could be their market and whether it's stable, it could be their competitor set. And so by understanding that there's six different buckets where all of our problems live, you and your team can begin to say, well, part of it was who presented. Part of it was the market situation because of the, the budget cutbacks. And then a little part of it had to do with the information that we had going in. And then you say, okay, those are the three major buckets. Let's start to rank on a scale of one to 10 how heavy that problem was. And all of a sudden, you're going to get a rank that we've got five problems. Our biggest problem is what's going on in the prospects market that we've got to adjust to on pricing. Our, and that's a scale of nine we've determined in the meeting. Our second biggest problem is we've got to improve our information so we can create a cost-saving formula for them. We don't have that information. We've got to go get it. And all the other problems are on a scale of one to ten, just twos and ones. That is huge when you're trying to win an account because otherwise it's like whack-a-mole. 
You just solve anything you try to solve, and the mold pops up again and says, we're still not ready to move forward. So the fishbone allows you to get there a lot quicker by prioritizing the real problems that you should be spending time solving. That, that's a really interesting thing I want to I remind people that, of something that you said. It's first making sure we're even solving the right problem. Mm. I think the challenge is the thing that we think it is, it, it may not be. It may be something else, like they don't perceive enough value in the solution in the first place. Okay, I'll give you an example. real on that, and now we can fix it. That's right. So I'll give you a great example of how this worked in a meeting. So there was a, a media company trying to sell advertising to one of the big automakers, okay? And so they got stuck on a deal where the automakers, like, and they were trying to sell rich media advertising, you know, like video ads. And so the automakers like, no, we're not going to pay your 500 grand because your competitor is offering the same, well, they're offering a, a, another solution for the, that pr- less price. We want you to match price. And they were like, wait a minute, the competitor is just doing flat banner advertisement. It's not video ads. It's not rich media. Those don't work very well. And so they said, we've got to figure out how to get our client to find the other $100,000 in their budget. So they got together in a room, and the problem was, how do we get the automaker to find the other 100 because they want us to match this price at 400 Obviously, we need them to, to allocate more money to get a better solution. So they're all sitting around debating the problem. One of the marketing people who used to buy ads says, let's talk about the problem behind the problem. Why don't why don't they want to pay more? Well, because the competitor's doing it. They're saying, stop, wait a minute. Automakers spend a billion dollars on ads. This is nothing to them. Maybe they don't perceive the value of rich media as being worth more than 100. And then so one of the people in the room says, no, 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 no. We showed them a slide of our internal research that showed the ROI. And this person from marketing who was a real buyer says, no, 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 you don't get it. No one believes internal research. You're going to get burned buying a vendor's internal research. She says, the real problem is we don't have a credible third-party piece of research that proves that our rich media is worth 20% more than their flat media. And that's where they discovered the solution of going outside and partnering with AC Nielsen, who came in and said it had a two-to-one return on investment. The minute they went back to the automaker, showed them the research, the automaker signed on at their price. So they found the real problem behind the problem in that situation, and it changed everything. And they were able to justify the value. Yeah, and and they stopped trying to debate budget and they started to debate value, and they realized the secret to debating value is where you get your proof. This and they is, only learned that by doing a deal storm. Th- this is deal storming, the secret weapon that can solve your toughest sales challenges. And if you are in B2B listening to this, this book will absolutely help you because this is where all the action is. It's how do you find a breakthrough idea? And if what you were doing was working or what your competitors were doing was working, you wouldn't be there anyway. This is Tim Sanders. Tim, I'm asking you, which I prepped you for, I want to do a James Lipton uh, in the actor's studio set of questions. You're the perfect guy to be my first person to do this, if you don't mind. So a couple more questions in a lightning round sort of scenario. What book are you reading? What book are you reading right now? I'm reading Team of Teams by General Stanley McChrystal. It's a brilliant book about how to build a team to defeat a team. What's the most important book you've ever read and and why? Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, because he taught me that success is not a destination. It's a direction. The direction's forward, and you do that by owning your thought process. Positive thinking is a design issue. It's not an intention issue or a motivational issue. Great answer. 
Who has had the biggest influence on your thinking? Stanley Marcus Jr., the founder of Neiman Marcus. Um, he taught me that if you're a constant student for your entire life, you will continually be able to be a good mentor. He taught me that mentorship comes from Greek mythology, and it started out with um, mere earthlings trying to mentor Greek gods and usually getting killed. He taught me that mentorship is about courage, and that made me a challenger salesperson so that for the rest of my career, I would mentor my customers and their grand bosses, and it changed everything in my life and developed most of my important relationships. Got to be consultative. Um, what, what's the most important lesson you've learned up to this point in your life? What, Don't, so I, I got to say the most important lesson I learned, I learned from Stan Woodward at broadcast.com. That's the Mark Cuban company. And the lesson was when you get stuck, don't go down alone. And it was because I really identified with being the kind of guy that was like Ayn Rand's fountainhead. I could get it done by myself. I, I wanted to be low maintenance in an organization. And I prided myself on not bugging the crap out of everybody that I work with. But Woodward came in from the world of Ascend and Cisco and all those places where they did really big deals, deals I'd never even thought of doing. And he just told me, he's like, Tim, you'll never win an award for failing on your own, okay? He says, don't go down alone. He goes, it takes courage to reach out, especially across the company and ask for help. So learn how to be more courageous. And that just like flipped my paradigm and is relevant to why I even wrote this book. It's in the book. If you weren't writing, speaking, and consulting, what job would you be doing? Um, I would be a professional musician right now, and I'd probably be producing uh, electronic music uh, down-tempo tracks. I still have a studio. I love to do it. I'd be broke. I'd be broke, but, but that's what I'd be doing because I just get lost in that when I do it. I just, I just love putting together beats and, and, and songs. Me too. What do you hope to be remembered for? Um, I hope to be remembered for a person that brought love and compassion into the workplace and convinced people that you are successful because of your generosity and your, your empathy and not despite it. Um, and and every, every work that I write really comes back to this idea of success through sharing. And, and I hope that's how everybody remembers me. We're going to point people to deal storming and we're also going to point them to um, your other books. We'll, we'll make a list here. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Anthony. I really appreciate it. He is Tim Sanders. You can find him at timsanders.com. Also sign up for his blog at sandersays.typepad.com. You'll find that in the show notes. I'm Anthony Anarino. You can find me at thesalesblog.com. When you show up there, do sign up for the newsletter. It's thesalesblog.com forward slash newsletter. And every Sunday, you'll get actionable ideas and insights that you can put to work Monday morning. Until next time, I'll see you in the arena.